One uh, of the things about being a pastor, I mean, I've heard this and I'm discovering it, um, is that it's one of the unique uh, vocations where you get to walk with people in all aspects of their life. So if uh, you do infant, like we here, we do baptize infants. So with an infant, they are baptized sometime after they're born or maybe dedicated. And I have a, a part to play in that. And then as the children grow and they eventually become confirmed, I have a part to play in that. And then uh, if they happen to be around and come back, which hopefully they would love to have come back for us to marry them, there's another aspect of life that I get to be a part of. And then as uh, people grow and age, you see people as they get to the end of their life. Now, I probably won't see every stage of every person's life, but I get to be working with people in all of those stages. And as Carrie had uh, done so well today, talking about the stages of growth, even when it comes to harvesting crops, and as we listen to that famous passage from Ecclesiastes, verses 1 through 8, what we hear is this, idea that life has a cycle. And as a pastor, I get to be with people in every cycle or every step on the cycle of life. But as uh, God's people, we also get to share in, in a lot of that too in people's lives. But as we begin to consider this passage in the rest of chapter 3, as we've been studying Ecclesiastes for the last two weeks since we went through chapter 1 and chapter 2, we've seen so far that Kohelet doesn't always see things in life as good. Sometimes he sees things as meaningless. So as we look at this passage today, one of the challenges is we're going to have to consider, well, what does he want us to hear about this passage? Because we've all been through the stages, or we've all seen people in the stages of life, and some of us have been through many of them. And we might have different opinions about those stages, depending on where you're at or what your life has been like. So why don't we open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to be looking through all of that. So that's verses 1 through 22. So if you want to open in your pew Bible, that is page, I've got to get the right part of the bulletin, the one part I haven't looked at yet, Eight or 575, page 575, and I encourage you to follow along because it'll be easier to, to uh, follow the sermon as we walk through this passage. So... As I'd said the last two weeks, we're not sure who wrote Ecclesiastes. But what we, what we can say is that there's a character in the book who speaks in the first person. They say, I did this, I did that, I experienced this. They're offering an autobiographical account. And what they're doing is they're searching for meaning. And we said that this person calls himself Coalette which is the Hebrew word that is translated as teacher in the NIV, preacher in other, passage, other translations. But we said that's actually probably more like a title and not necessarily um, supposed to be translated. 
So Colette talks about his exploration. And last week he explored wisdom and folly. And he told us he denied himself no pleasure, but in the end he saw that wisdom was still better than folly. And he said, in the end it's all meaningless. So then he asked the question, should we simply enjoy the small things in life? Should we just enjoy the fruits of our labor as a result of everything else being meaningless? Now this week he turns from wisdom and folly to the cycle of life on earth. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 3 and, and walk through this. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So these eight verses are sometimes considered a poem by people who read the passage, um, specifically people who study this in the original language. And even if it's not a poem, there's definitely symmetry, there's definitely an A and a B, a time for this and then a time for the opposite. And verse 1 sets that stage by saying that there's a time for everything in life and there's a season for every activity. And then verses 2 through 8 jump into these seasons. So as I said, the difficulty with this passage is what does Colette want us to understand about these eight verses? Does he see the seasons of life as something good or as something bad? So a lot of people will take this passage and they will view it positively because they see it as comforting in some sense. But then other people might look at that in, in, in this passage and think that it seems like maybe the cycles is all there is. And the cycles are unescapable and the cycles are something that we might wish didn't exist. But I think no matter what, we look at this and it captures life. It's so true that there's a season for this and a season for that. There's a season when we're in school. There's a season when we're working after we've gone to school. There's a season for having children or having a life of a young adult. And there's a season for when you've grown past that stage and you're later in life. There's a season for working and a season for retiring. And all of these seasons have up and downs. In some, as some seasons, aspects of life fade but then those new aspects take over. But the question still remains, so how does Colette want us to interpret this passage? How are we supposed to hear it? Does he want us to see the cycle of life as a positive or a negative thing? 
So when we read the Bible, this is what we need to do. We need to say, well, what did the author want us to hear? Not what do I hear, but what did the author want us to hear? So in verse 15, this is how Colette continues. He says, Whatever is has already been, and whatever will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. So he's talked about seasons, and now he talks, he shifts his focus to human life and human relationships. He acknowledges that there's nothing new in the world. And he says, even though people might think they have new ideas, in reality, those ideas actually aren't that new at all. They've had, they've, someone's had that idea before. So we talked about this already. In the first week, there was, a, there was a, a verse that talked about the same idea. And what I said, and it's st still true here, that this isn't talking about technology. So we think about technology, and technology definitely, there's new ideas that didn't exist 100 years ago. We can think of lots of technology in the last 100 years that has changed life substantially. But still, what does technology do? It tries to set out to offer different answers to the same questions to solve problems. We try to increase our productivity. We try to increase what we're able to do in a day. We try to increase the amount of distance we're able to travel in a day. But it's all about solving the same problems. So when we think about it, life is always creating the same problems, and these are age-old problems. It's just we might try to answer them in different ways. But we're always trying to answer the same question. Humans have always treated one another the way they continue to treat one another. So even though we might say that we're more enlightened and that we have newer government models or communication methods that make us able to communicate and treat each other better, we have to look no further than the 1940s to see that that wasn't true. And then we can look at what's happening all over the world today. The terrorist attacks that happen in London and in other cities around Europe, the people who are just walking on the street. We might think that we're better off than generations before us, but maybe we're not. Maybe the answers we're offering are just different, but the problems are still there and the solutions never pan out. And then Colette, so he sees this and he looks actually at justice and this is what he says. He says, I saw something else under the sun in the place of judgment Wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. So now he actually considers judgment and justice. These two things together are legal terms. So think about the legal system. We have a judgment based upon evidence by a jury in some cases. The jury, the jury takes evidence and then weighs what they've heard and they have a verdict, which is also a legal term, which is just a decision about what they believe is true, and then they have a judgment that is ruled. Now that judgment should render justice, either for the accused or the, the one who is 
the victim. Because if the accused is guilty, the justice is in receiving what the law they broke requires. So if we think about getting a speeding ticket, we can see how this becomes clear. So if you're speeding and you get pulled over because you're operating a motor vehicle above the posted speed, now that's probably kind of how the legal language is. I don't know. I didn't look it up. Justice is served when we actually pay the fine. So when we pay the fine, you're saying, okay, you know what? I was speeding. I am going to receive a guilty verdict, and I'm going to pay the ticket. Now, if you go to court and you argue against that, then you're saying, well, maybe justice hasn't been served because it's been unjust for me to be pulled over. Now, it's rare for police officers to actually give speeding tickets that are unjust. Not that it might not happen. But what Colette is saying is he looks at what should be a just process and he sees that the judgments are corrupted, and he sees that justice is corrupted. Now, isn't this common in our world? We need not look further than the news to see that maybe there is a lot of injustice in the world. Humans using other humans to get on top. That's the story of our world. And we need to not look any further than what's going on right now in the nation's capital with these hearings about the Supreme Court, the newest Supreme Court nominee. So regardless of what you think about the situation, there's a lot of people using other people to try to get their position on top. I don't think hardly anyone involved in that process is interested in justice. They're interested in what they want to come through. Middle school and high school students, they see this all the time too. Because teenagers are really good at building themselves up at the expense of other people. That's what we do. That's the way the world seems to want to work. And Coelette looks at this and he says one thing. He says, I said to myself in verse 17, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. So in the end, God will judge people. But in the meantime, are we just stuck with what we get? Is it just a cycle of life that we're stuck in? Can we not escape it? And this forces us to consider a question, and this is, I think, where Kola is taking us. He's, he wants us to ask, could it be the case that God has fixed things out of our control so that we can't do anything about it and we're just stuck to be where we're at? Are we forced to live on this giant ball that spins around an even bigger ball without any control over what ultimately happens. Now this is the thing, regardless of what we think about that as Christians, because I think there's a lot of reasons to question that. You know, as I've said in, uh, a couple of times now, this is going to force us to be uncomfortable at times, because this, this is something in the Bible. 
It doesn't make sense, maybe, because it shouldn't say this. But the reality is there are a lot of people in life who believe this. And there's even Christians who believe this. So is Colette pushing us to consider that maybe everything is out of our control? He continues in verse 18, he says this. He, he said, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that, they, that, so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. So now Colette considers how we're like animals. He doesn't see any difference. And again, like last week, we get to this idea that eventually life ends in death. And now it's gone further, because not only does human life end in death, but he reminds us that animals' lives also end in death. And maybe what that means is that we're actually no different than animals, and in the end, our life is going to end in death too. Again, this is a common tune in our world. People say that humans, homo sapiens, are just another species that have, of one of many species that have lived on the earth throughout the years. What makes us superior? Why are we entitled to more resources than these other species? And then people say, the humans will eventually die and will be extinct too, like many species before us, and then there'll be species after us. And then he says something even more shocking, I think, for Christians in verse 20. He says, All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if human spirit, if the human spirit arises upward and if the spirit of animals goes down into the earth. So verse 21, it crea this creates a very uncomfortable consideration, especially to be found in the Bible. Because what he's saying here is he's saying, after humans die, do they just like animals just go into the earth? And what he's actually asking, he says, is there actually no afterlife? Do humans not go to heaven after they die? Do their spirits not go up? But do they, like animals, go into the earth? So actually, this is one of the less controversial places in Ecclesiastes. Simply because in the Old Testament, there's actually not a lot of development about the ideas of afterlife. So the fact that Coelette mentions that actually is a move towards the afterlife because humans are considering, well, maybe there's more than just life. Now that's an interesting topic in and of itself. But I just say this to say that by the time we get to Jesus, the, the, the perspective has changed vastly. And we see that, that this passage is actually showing us how it moved towards what we get in the New Testament. And what Jesus latches onto and actually explains more fully. But still, the consideration is unsettling. And I think it brings everything in this passage to a head. It makes us wonder... Is it possible that life is simply a cycle? 
and there's nothing beyond that. That we have no control over the direction of the world, and that eventually we will die and decay just like animals. Is it true that life is meaningless because we're time-trapped until the end? We can't escape time. It continues to tick. We can't do anything about it. We go through these cycles, and eventually we die. Does this mean that life is meaningless? This is, I think, is something that's not fun to consider. But I think it's important for us to consider it. Because maybe you've actually felt this before, and you've felt like you can't say it because you're a Christian. You're supposed to, to know that there's hope. But this is the thing. Right here in the Bible, there's a guy named Coalette who's calling into question this idea that God has a good hope in mind. Maybe everything just is meaningless. And also, how many people have set out to impact the world, and in the end, they've discovered that they can do little to change things? How many people feel that life is one-directional and that they can do nothing to change how it ends? There's a lot of people who feel this way. Maybe they're in our building. Maybe they're in other church buildings. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're your neighbors. Maybe they're your coworkers, your classmates. But there's people who feel this way. It's important that our scriptures acknowledge that this is a common human feeling. So if you felt it, that's okay. If you know someone in your life who has felt it, that is part of life, and you shouldn't hold that against them. Because sometimes when I look around, I can see how this actually might be a legitimate conclusion to what we see. And maybe some of you have felt that before, too. But does Coalette end here? Does he lead us into this hole and then stop? Because again, everything is appearing meaningless. Life is a cycle that we cannot escape or influence, and it ends in death. But he does offer an answer, and he actually offers the answer twice. And I skipped it the first time. Maybe you noticed we went from verse 8 to verse 15. And then we get, then he says it again at the very end in verse 22. So this is what he says in 914. He says, What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. In verse 22 he says, So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? So we've got back to where we ended last week. Eat, drink, and be merry, as I put it. Or a different way, enjoy the small things. And last week I said that this is 
that he says this idea of eat, drink, be, drink, and be merry, he says it seven times in Ecclesiastes. So this is the second and third occurrence. And I also said last week that people read this in Ecclesiastes and they read it as an endorsement of something called hedonism, which is basically just the pursuit of pleasure. So is Colette simply telling us to enjoy the fine things in life without any restrictions? But the other thing that he tells us that we need to remember is he says it's not about enjoying pleasure, but it's about seeing these small things as gifts from God. He said that last week, he says it again this week. So in his pursuit for meeting, meaning, Kolek now considers life. He noticed that life falls into seasons or cycles, and he realizes that these cycles are beyond our control, and that they end with death, just like all the other animals on the earth. So again, this causes Colette to wonder, is life meaningless? Because he realizes he can do nothing more than enjoy the fruits of his labor. He says, if everything's meaningless, maybe all we can do is enjoy the fruits of our labor. So he's pushing us this week to consider a different question. So if you noticed, we're considering questions in this and not statements. So this is the next question he wants us to consider. Can we impact the world? Can we make a difference? Or should we enjoy the small things? Can we impact the world? Or should we enjoy the small things? There are people who devote their entire life to making an impact on the world. Maybe some of you have even set out earlier in life or currently to make an impact on the world. Or maybe at least you want your life to matter. Now I think all of us could say that. We want our lives to matter. We want them to be a positive impact. But the thing is, sooner or later, later I think most of us wonder if things are going to be the way they are no matter what we do or how hard we try. And I've thought this before. Because I, you know, coming out of school, I had this big idea that I was going to change the way people understood church. I'm talking about coming out of an undergrad, not seminary. That people needed to be more in their Bible and this and that. And I had these ideas that I could change everything. And I still, I think, have some of those hopes, but I may be a little bit more realistic about what I can actually do or what we can do as a people. But still, it's easy to get beat down in the day-to-day as we try to make a difference. So maybe we should just enjoy the small things and forget about the bigger picture, like maybe Colette is telling us. But also, remember I've told us that we have to wait to the end to get the conclusion. And in the middle, he might make us uncomfortable while we wait. So can we impact the world or should we just enjoy the small things? 
Now, I'm going to give us a little glimmer. And actually, Carrie, you did such a good job in your, in your children's sermon of encapsulating exactly this idea, I think. Because remember, last week I pushed us to say that the small things was a solution for finding meaning in life when we see how those small things point us to God's glory. So the small things point us to God's glory. So maybe the way that we impact the world is through enjoying the small things. Maybe that's how we make the difference. And as Carrie had said, it's the hope that we offer. Maybe the hope is what makes the difference. Maybe life isn't about making a huge impact, but maybe it's through making small, effective impacts. So this has a name. It's called the butterfly effect. The idea that a butterfly flaps its wings and it moves air that eventually turns into a hurricane somewhere around the world. It's a fun little theory. Who knows if it's actually a thing? But it's the idea that small things can create a chain of events that eventually have huge circumstances in the world. So maybe those small things and enjoying them actually can make an impact in the long term. And we're going to talk more about that, but not until later in Ecclesiastes. So can we impact the world, or should we enjoy the small things? It's early in this book, but maybe we can do a little bit of both. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people, and we recognize the beauty in what you've created, the cycles of life, the laws of nature, things that govern our world that we can't escape. And we see those sometimes as beauty and sometimes as a prison. Lord, may we see the small things in our lives that are gifts from you. May those small things give us hope that we can share with other people as we all are in this time together journeying through life. We ask this in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, the one God, now and forever. Amen.